to see things in the seed that is true genius. This is the Yoakum Strength Podcast with me, your host, Austin Yoakum, and producer Marcus Sassen behind the scenes. This quote leads us in our guest today, Chris Borthwick. Chris is the assistant director of sports performance for Olympic sports at Wake Forest. He also runs his own podcast, CoachCast, which brings on some of the top coaches in sports performance field and kind of dives into their methods and goes about it in a way of presenting on a topic and diving deeper into a topic that he's heard him present on before. Chris has been recommended to me multiple times by past guests. And today we had an awesome conversation about Chris's approach to training. A lot of things he talks about is the barrier for entry to your sports and what is actually required, what actually is making us better, and then what actually is just the, the token to get into the sport, the, the, the required level of strength to just enter your sports. And it was just an awesome way to put it. And he goes about talking about kind of his background and his upbringing and all of the different experiences that he's able to draw upon to put into his program. And it, it's something that I thought was really cool. And if you read the book range and you just dive into those topics, you realize why somebody like Chris thinks the way he thinks and how he's able to grab upon all these experiences that others would talk about. Like you want that linear approach. You want to go from point A to point B and that's how success is made. And if you actually look at successful people, you understand that there's so many different points that they're able to draw upon and that allows them to solve so many different problems. And that's something that I thought was really cool about Chris's background and experience. And hopefully you guys get something out of the podcast. I know I did. And thank you guys for listening. All right. Well, coach, welcome to the podcast. I'm excited to have you here. Oh, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Do you want to tell the listeners a little bit about your background and kind of how you got into the world of sports performance, how you got to the Wake Forest and where you're at now? Yeah, sure. So I'll go, you want me to go all the way back? Oh yeah. All the way back. Let's dig deep. <laughs> so yeah, like, like most coaches, I suppose, kind of a, a failed athlete. Um, I started off, my background's actually in rugby. I played rugby and, and tennis as my two main sports growing up. Um, I went away to, to university in the UK um, and I, I just played rugby my whole time there. Um, and then I was doing my, my sport and exercise science degree program. And then as part of that program, we had to do a placement and the placement was either you did like a Wednesday afternoon, I think it was, and you'd go away to like a school because a lot of people wanted to be PE teachers and things like this. And so you could do it as part of your year and you go and do your Wednesday afternoon in the school or, or whatever you want to do. And I just thought that sounded terrible. Like I didn't want to be my, both my parents are, are teachers and I knew from the experience of being around teachers, I didn't want to be a teacher. Um, so I actually, during the, that kind of time, I said to my, my professor, I was like, look, I really don't want to do kind of, I want to, don't want to go to a school, get my experience there. I want to do something a little bit more. Um, so I went to, I messaged a few universities and I actually went to Wake Forest, uh, not Wake Forest, sorry, uh, Florida State University. And I interned at Florida State in 2012, I think it was the kind of year, I think it was the year before they won the national championship, 2013. So, which was pretty cool. Like I knew nothing. <laughs> so I'm like, I'm dumped into this environment. I'm in my, I've just done my second year of my undergraduate degree and I'm put in front of these like hulking men. Like I'm just this skinny British kid hanging around this program with these, these massive strength coaches, this clanging and banging some, some iron around. Uh, and I actually, I was very lucky. Coach John Jost uh, at Florida State at the time got me involved with the football program. He got me involved with the swimming and like loads of different Olympic sports. And I was just in there from, I'd be like first in the door. I made it my, my mission to be there from like 5 a.m. when the facility first opened 
until whenever it closed at night, like 7 p.m. or whatever it would be. And during the time I was there, like that summer period, I just try and engulf myself in as much as possible. And just, I wanted to really understand, is this what I want to do? Is this kind of, if I'm going to come halfway around the world for an experience, I want it to get the most out of the experience. Um, so I did that. I did that for the summer. And then I went back to, uh, to the university. And then actually during that time, they advertised, funnily enough, uh, just as I was getting back, they advertised for an internship program um, at the university for like essentially an assistant strength conditioning position, which would have been an intern. It was a, a paid internship. Didn't It paid like a thousand pounds, like 1500 bucks or something like that for the year. So like, that was great. You know, I had some, a little bit of money coming in uh, and university fees in the UK at that time weren't that much. So it actually ended up paying for my master's degree, um, which was, which was fantastic. Um, so yeah, I actually applied for this position. Uh, I got the position essentially because I had some experience where maybe other candidates didn't. Um, and I worked, I worked uh, for two years, my final year of university. And then I did my master's degree at the same place, um, at Northumbria university. So I did two years there. And then during that time, I was working under a coach called Joel Brannigan, who I'm still in touch with today, kind of laid the foundations of kind of what I know in strength conditioning and kind of the standards that he set, which was phenomenal. And he gave me essentially my first, first opportunity to, to coach athletes and to be honest, throw me in the deep end and just being like, okay, well, there's your rugby league team. There's your 30 athletes. Bearing in mind, I'd never really <laughs> coached anyone at this point. And I'm just like, oh, like, hi guys. <laughs> and it's essentially like sink or swim. Um, so uh, luckily I, I kind of survived and got through that, that first day and then months and then obviously through the years and learned a lot along the way. Uh, and that's kind of how it all, how it all started for me. Um, one thing kind of, kind of led to another there. Um, so obviously getting, just being at university, just wanting to do something in sports science, taking a plunge to go to, to the States, getting that experience. And then that being a pretty defining factor is like, that was a really cool experience. That's what I want to do. And that was the moment back in 2012 when I was like, okay, that's what, that's what I want to do. Got the internship experience. Um, and then from there, I actually, I left university. Um, and I always kind of had this inkling in the back of my head saying, okay, that Florida state experience was the best experience ever. I, w I want more of that. And I was like, how do I get to the U S how do I get to the U S? So this is always a thought in the back of my mind and it wasn't necessarily a reality because of obviously visa constraints and stuff like that. So anyway, I, I applied for a few jobs that summer and I got the position of head strength conditioning coach at Radley college, um, a small college in the UK, actually like a high school. Um, and I was the head of SNC there for, for two years. Had had a great time. I lived on site. My food was kind of catered for, um, my accommodation was catered for. My salary was, was terrible. It was like nine and a half thousand pounds for the year, but it just didn't matter. Cause I was doing what I loved. You know, I was coaching day in, day out. I was around some really good, um, other staff members that I worked with and lived with and built some phenomenal relationships. And I'm like still some of my best friends today. So it was kind of like this little, just group of guys that love SNC and we can go out and coach these athletes and just try stuff out. And at that age group, it's if you kind of mess it up, it doesn't matter quite as much. Um, and you can just, just have fun with it. And I learned a lot. My boss there was, um, Mark Spivey. He was the director of sport and he actually worked with the England cricket team and a lot of other professional sport previously as a strength and conditioning coach. So I learned a ton from him. And then from that, I kind of, it got to the end of that two years and I was like, okay, I'm like ready to do something different. Um, and I, applied for, I was looking around actually one or two positions. Uh, I was like, I want to try and make this jump to the U S before it's too late. And I didn't really know how to do it. So I emailed 150 schools 
Um, pretty much every D1 school I could think of, I'd ever heard of, I sent out just an email and I tried to do it from more of an individualized approach. Cause obviously a lot of people just copy and paste everything and put it in. So I tried to do it more of an individualized approach. And then there was actually three schools that got back to me. It was a Stanford, Stanford got back to me, Wisconsin got back to me and Northwestern state university in Louisiana and uh, got back to me during this time. And because I didn't really know what I was doing. So I actually was still applying for a job in the UK. Uh, and I got offered a job um, in the UK as a head of strength conditioner at another school, um, another kind of high school. Uh, and it was, it was like, to be honest, it was pretty good money. It was a house again. Um, so like, obviously you've got no living expenses really. Um, so I'd had that kind of job offer and I didn't accept it straight away because I knew there was a few things potentially going on in the US. Anyway, long story short there, I actually got offered a position at Northwestern State uh, University. And now the, um, like just in the, the director at the time, won't mind me saying this, but the actual, so the deal at Northwestern state was, I believe it was $16,000 for the year, your stipend as a GA. Um, cause it was the only way for me to get into the country. I had to be like a graduate assistant, get in on a student visa. Anyway, the stipend was $16,000 for the year. And that wasn't like, you didn't have, um, tuition covered or like rent covered. You had to use that to pay the tuition, which was funny <laughs> enough, $16,000 for the year. <laughs> So I was going in like with nothing in my pocket really to kind of, to make any money there. And I was weighing up this decision. And one of the biggest kind of, I suppose, decisions I've actually made in my life was probably that time. And then one of my friends, funny enough, Cameron Ringstead, who's actually at Elon now, um, was staying at my house at the time. With, it was with my parents and, um, the direct, the, um, director of sport at this, this school in the UK called me up and he's like, Chris, look, I need a decision. Like, what are you going to do? And Cam's like, you've just got to make a decision like whatever you feel like essentially what your heart says. So I'm sitting outside just speaking to this, this guy on the phone and I'm like, uh, I'm going to America. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, what? And I'm like, yeah, sorry. Like, I just feel it's the right thing to do. So I essentially went from this position of being very, what well, would have had a lot of financial security and like career longevity. Cause it's very hard to get fired in those positions in the UK to, going to a country, especially a state where I'd never really heard anything of, didn't know much about the program, didn't even know where really Northwestern State University was. Um, and I just, yeah, like a, few, like a month later, I think I jumped on a plane and then went to, went to Louisiana with nothing but a suitcase. Like my life was just packed into this suitcase. I went there not really knowing what to do. I managed to live with another graduate assistant there at the time. I'm still very good friends with, classroom was a very good friend. And, um, yeah, we got there. So I didn't have a bed, didn't have any money. I tried not to, I obviously been working at that previous position for two years. I had a little bit of money saved up, but I wanted to do it. I didn't want to use that money to get me through it. I wanted to treat, really try and do it myself over there. So I actually, I know many people know this, but so I slept on the floor for six months, I think it was. And I had my, like my comforter, my duvet with me. I just wrapped myself up in that sucker every night and I just went to sleep. And as it is when you're a GA for the most part, like we were up at I think 4.30 in the morning and we didn't get back till, till nine at night. And at this point it was about making, we had to make a little bit of money um, to be able to pay rent. And like I said, the other stuff was savings. I didn't have this money as far as I was concerned. I had what I had. I had given myself a small budget to take with me uh, to the US and it was essentially kind of survive or, or die and kind of jump ship and go back to the UK. So yeah, that was kind of the situation that we were dealt with. And then we ended up setting up a small CrossFit facility in the university weight room where mem staff members and, and other students would pay us to actually make, um, for us to coach them on a unit. 
So that was kind of the way we made a little bit of money so we could pay rent. So we, we set this up and it made us a little bit of money. We, we paid rent and we, we could get by for a little bit. And anyway, I was there for kind of six to eight months and um, I got to, it got to around Christmas time and I, I went home uh, to see my family. And when I was back in the UK, I, um, I got offered a position back at the University of Bath, which was a strength conditioning coach slash lecturing position. And I didn't really feel I was kind of qualified to do it, if I'm honest, because of, I was like, I don't really have any experience lecturing. I did a little bit when I was at Northwestern State as part of the degree. I had to lecture to some of the undergraduate students because I was doing my master's in business, I think it was. Um, but anyway, they, funnily enough, I interviewed, I interviewed for this job when I was back there, just out of the blue, to be honest with you. And um, I got offered this job as a lecturer and strength and conditioning coach. I was like, well, it's kind of sleeping on the floor sucks, if I'm honest. And it's kind of this, go back to the US, sleep on the floor again, or be like pretty well paid as a lecturer and, and coach and live in a very nice part of the country in Bath. So I was like, yeah, <laughs> you know, so I actually went and I went to the University of Bath and, uh, uh, and started lecturing and coaching there. The one thing I actually missed out during my time in Louisiana, I worked with the like football, basketball and, and tennis. And I worked kind of in tennis and then during like this time as well, the Wake Forest actually got in touch with me because they, they'd heard essentially like obviously a Brit working in tennis in Louisiana, not the most common thing in the world. Um, so they, they flew me out to visit them um, during that time. And I just essentially did, I wouldn't really call it consulting, to be honest. I was there for a week and I said what I thought was good about their program, what I thought could be improved and coached a few kids and stuff like that, kind of from the outside just looking in, just give them a bit of an opinion. Um, and the, like the assistant coach is, is English at Wake, and that's kind of how he, he knew my name. So kind of one thing led to another, and I'm, I managed to, to get to Wake for that week for that kind of consulting. And then I went back to Louisiana, not thinking of it, went back to the University of Bath. Uh, sorry, I was at the University of Bath, obviously, and I was just working away there, like lecturing, like really in, enjoying myself, having a great time. Met my girlfriend there as well. Um, so I was like, I was pretty happy there. And then I get this phone call the night before I go on holiday. Uh, I was going to like France or something on holiday and I'm just lying in bed and I get this phone call and it's the, the assistant coach, uh, Chris. And he's like, Hey Chris, how you doing? I was like, Oh, Hey, <laughs> how are you doing? <laughs> Didn't expect to get the call. And he's like, look, I think we can make this happen. Do you want to come to wake and be the, like be the assistant coach, uh, be the, the strength conditioning coach. I was like, yeah, sure. I like, didn't think anything of it. I think Trump had just came into office and I know border restrictions and stuff like getting a visa was near impossible um, at that point. So I honestly didn't think anything of it. I was just like, yeah, sure. Kind of throwaway comment. At this point, my girlfriend's in tears because she thinks I'm leaving. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I, I genuinely didn't think anything would happen of it. So I, I um, just kind of got on with my job. I went on holiday, blah, 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 blah. And then nine months later, I get a call saying, your visas came through. Can you get on a plane tomorrow? <laughs> I'm like, really? Like, didn't have a clue. Didn't have a clue. Genuinely didn't think it would happen. Um, had no idea. So more, I think, by good luck than good management that I kind of made that, that jump to the US. Um, and obviously, I had to say yes, because it was essentially the, the childhood dream, so to speak. So I managed to, to make that jump. And I was on a plane by the end of the week. So it was by the end of the week, I was on a plane uh, over to the US and yeah, I've been here three years now. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that journey is, I, we talk all the time on the podcast, but like winding journeys, but that, I mean, that journey is probably the most winding journey that we've had on this podcast, uh, bumping locations, bumping kind of thought processes on what we want to do with our job. And I think 
And if you read the book range and you talk about like the amount you're able to grab from each different spot, each different environment you've been in. And it's not even just into the strength conditioning role. I mean, it's life, like the amount of different cultures that I'm sure you got to experience going back and forth everywhere. Like that has to be amazing. Yeah, it was, oh, it was an eye opener for sure. Like, I don't know if many people have, have been to Louisiana, especially people from the UK, like that's a culture shock in itself. Like going down to Louisiana, I didn't know anyone, didn't have a car, had to walk around. And like one, like a little side note, but one, one story one night was I'd, I think I'd stayed at the library and done some, done some extra work for me. I was maybe studying or something like that. And I was, I was like, Oh, how am I going to get back? I lived across the other side of town. It's like maybe a few miles. I was like, oh, no big deal. I'll walk. It was like 10, 11 PM. Um, so like pretty late at night. And then I, anyway, I walked back, not thinking anything, like walk over the railroad, walk down the road, over the bridge, back to my apartment. And my, 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 my housemate is like, Chris, where have you been? I was like, oh, I was at the library. He's like, how'd you get back? I was like, I walked. And he's like, dude, you're an idiot. <laughs> He's like, you can't just walk like, down, like, down the streets uh, around this area. And I was like, oh, I just went over the railroad. It was fine. He's like, you went over the railroad? He's like, that's where all the drug dealers are. <laughs> <laughs> and I was just like, just this kid from like, the UK that had no idea, you know? And I didn't think anything of it. I just thought everyone was like friendly and, and, and stuff like that. And, and that was, yeah, just a real shock. And I was like, oh, I never thought of it. And then I told one of the other assistants, he's like, dude, I never leave my house without a knife. Or like got in my car, and I, at that point I was like, I haven't told my parents this, so I hope they don't see it. <laughs> but yeah, at that point I was like, oh shit, maybe I should, uh, maybe I should pay a bit more attention to where I'm going and what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that, like you said, that 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 culture change is probably huge. The other thing I want to kind of emphasize a little bit before we go into the specific strength conditioning stuff is kind of that that big leap of faith that you took. Um, you kind of just said on the phone like you're getting offered a really good job that you're talking to this guy, like that's almost like the safe and comfort that that guy was offering you. And you decided to take the jump and you took that jump multiple times. Like just, again, you could have did it when you were in college and they, you had to go do that. Just work in the high school and you went to the university and you went to um, Florida state. Like what is taking that jump? Like to you, like what, what makes you decide to take that jump that I feel like a lot of other people get kind of stuck in the rut and they never actually take that jump. And a lot of times that jumps way smaller than the jump you took where you went to a completely different country. Yeah. I think like, don't get me wrong, that they're, they're tough decisions, you know? Um, and I had a few sleepless nights over some of them. Um, but I think you're not going to grow inside of your comfort zone. And for me, it's all about how can I like, do my job better to serve my athletes better and my coaches better. And if I want to do that, then obviously I've got to get better as a, as a coach myself. And I just felt that, I've got to step out of my comfort zone. If the next step you're taking, you don't feel like you're going to kind of soil your pants or something like that, you know, you're not going to kind of shit yourself, then you're maybe not being ambitious enough. And that's kind of what got me thinking. I'm like, look, I could take this, this, this job that's with this well-paying. I'd have a good security. To be honest, I'd probably still be there now, but then what's that really doing for my career? Like I'm not necessarily developing myself. Um, as an individual as well and like learning from other people, some better coaches. Uh, and that's one of the big things I, I try and put myself around like, better coaches, smarter people than me that I can, that I can learn from. Um, and I just felt no disrespect to those other schools and things like that. But if I'm going into a head position at the age of what would I've been, I don't know, 21, 22, I probably like people are going to be asking me the questions and I'm meant to have the answers and I still don't have the answers now. <laughs> so how am I going to know that when I'm really young, just coming out of, of college and only got a few years experience. So 
yes, I was, I don't know if I was lucky to get, to get offered that head position. Maybe I was, but I still don't feel I would have kind of been well equipped enough to kind of make progressions down the line. You know, it's more about the experiences. And I say to a lot of people, at the end of the day, you're the sum of your experiences. You only know what you know because of your experiences. And the more experiences you've got, then the better position you're going to be in to make decisions around various topics and subjects in the future. Yeah. And I, I totally agree with that. And that's, that's what, what I brought up earlier is, is talking about your expansive range of experiences, not only in the strength conditioning world, but culturally and just how you're able to now relate. And I know you mentioned before the podcast that a lot of your athletes are international as well. And the, your ability to relate to them has to be huge. Yeah, I think so. A lot of our, our tennis team are kind of European based players. Um, so it's understanding, I think that helps with myself kind of being based or originally from like Europe and the UK. Um, understanding how those cultures work a little bit because I've traveled to those countries and some countries are a little bit more laid back than others. And it's understanding that, okay, well maybe because this guy's from, I don't know, France, for example, he's going to be a lot more laid back than a guy from Russia. Guy from Russia, kind of Eastern Europe is going to want maybe a bit more of a dictatorial approach. Like, look, this is how you do things. And this is like what you're going to do kind of no questions asked to an extent because that's all they're used to growing up. Whereas your other guy, your French guy, your Spanish guy, everything's like, oh, I'll do it later. I'll do it tomorrow, you know? And it's very much kind of let me have the siesta first and then we'll, then we'll get it done. And it's, it's understanding how, to, how those different cultures kind of come together to make a team. Um, and it's, it's not an easy thing to do, to be honest. Like I've definitely made some mistakes um, kind of in that in the past and making kind of maybe assumptions and things. Um, but yeah, I think it's, it's getting to understand those players, um, where they've come from. And to be honest as well, what academies they've been to the tennis system itself is very different to kind of football and basketball where you go through high school, then you go to college and then you go to, to the NBA or NFL or whatever it is. In, in Europe, you very much go to your academy from quite a young age and then you work your way through the age groups in the academy and you start playing junior events and then progress into more senior tour and eventually to like the professional tour. And it's, it's just, it's, in, I think it's very important for a coach working within like tennis strength conditioning to understand those, like the ITF tours, the tennis Europe's and stuff like that. Cause then you can hold those conversations with them. And if they're talking about something that happened five years ago on the kind of ITF junior tour, for example, then you understand kind of what's going on there instead of it just being a complete, cause if you're potentially an American or an SNC coach in general, and you've never worked in tennis, then hearing like ITF tour, tennis Europe, that type of stuff is going to be completely kind of just over your head. And I think myself kind of growing up playing tennis a little bit and having a, having a sister who played quite high level tennis anyway, um, helped me understand, uh, definitely understand a lot of that. Yeah. And now we, we, we talked about your tennis teams. Uh, I'm, I'm really interested in kind of your approach to working with these tennis teams now. And we talked about the communication aspect, but the actual sports specific realm of what you're approaching with these athletes, kind of your big picture of what they kind of need, um, kind of how the, the field maybe gets it wrong or is just kind of approaching it the wrong way. Maybe it's the KPIs, maybe it's the test that we use and kind of what, what you were doing currently with your athletes. I think it's kind of a, a threefold question to, to an extent. I think the big thing is first like need versus want with the, with the players. Okay. So what do they need is probably going to be completely different to actually what they want. So that's where you've got to kind of sprinkle a bit of magic dust and give them a little bit of what they want to get them on side to start with. Um, and that's, that's where I've made some, some mistakes earlier in my career. I've been like, look, this is what you need, guys, and you're not going to get anything of what you want. <laughs> and that's, that's been a mistake that, that I've made. Um, and it's when they come from these academies in, in, in Europe, 
and it's it's definitely more so that with the European based players than the American players. American players are very much they've been in a weight room for a good period of time, generally speaking, because I think the American culture is more around kind of weightlifting and just lifting weights in general. Whereas in Europe, kind of, I'm t- speaking more kind of France and Spain and things here. There's very much the the approach is based around kind of stability training and things like that, where it's more about balancing on a BOSU ball. So certain qualities are going to be developed and it's very much, but I think they don't necessarily understand the whole picture. Um, so it's educating them on that as well. Um, so giving them th- those players in particular are probably lacking strength, which most tennis players are. We look, 90% of tennis players are, mi- are missing strength qualities. So that's going to be one of our big rocks to start with that we're going to look to develop. And then we've got to take a kind of a hundred yard view um, at the sport itself. So take a huge step back and be like, okay, what does the sport actually look like? Um, like what, how long are the points? How, what's the distance they're covering? Do a, a thorough needs analysis and then work back from there. Because too often it's like, oh, well, I'm the strength guy. You're weak. I'm going to make you strong. And it's like, yeah, like that works to a degree. Um, and we, I've, got, I've got some data that says, look, we need to be about X amount strong like, so if you've got a trap bar deadlift, for example, at like 1.65 body weight, like you're probably strong enough. It's not, and that's nothing like it's nothing spectacular, but like from what I've seen, the guys who have got that kind of strong or stronger, like we realistically, what are we actually, what are we chasing here? Um, are we actually just wasting time just trying to get you to a, I don't know, 2.0 times body weight back squat, uh, not box squat, um, trap bar deadlift, for example. Uh, we, we probably are. So it's, it's such a skill orientated sport. You've got to understand that, yeah, strength's important, but it's not definitely not as important as what you think it probably is. Um, and that's something that I've, I've definitely learned over the last few years as well. And then I think the approach I take within tennis is like I say, you've got to take that thousand or hundred yard, thousand yard view, whatever you want to call it, take that step back and see what are they actually getting on the court? So they're a repeat sprint sport. They're getting, funnily enough, a lot of repeat sprints. That bucket is full, if not overflowing. So if you look at actually conditioning an athlete, then we've got to look at it from different ends of the spectrum. We've got to look at it from above and below the demands of the sport. So above the the demands are going to be training um, speed qualities, change of direction qualities with full rest. Okay. So it's nothing like nothing groundbreaking here, really. It's, it's qualities that definitely carry over um, to other sports as well, because I think the Charlie, the Charlie Francis quote is that I don't care how many times you don't touch the, touch the net or touch the rim. And it's, it's exactly the same times, uh, same tennis. It's like, look, I don't really, I don't care how many times you don't get to the short ball. It's we've got to be able to get you to the short ball. Um, so we've got to chase those speed qualities over time there. We've got to really hammer home on our high quality training days. And that's kind of a system that we we've slowly developed over the last few years as well. And then underpinning all of that with some high quality aerobic development, um, specific to the sport as well. So in terms of an example might be the classic tempo is kind of a hundred yard tempo, or hundred meter tempo, uh, maybe in around 18 seconds, rest the remainder and then go again. And then something that I've in- incorporated is like a one by 20 approach to tempo training. Number one, because it saves a heck of a lot of time. And then I think the kids actually just like it a bit more as well in terms of, look, they're spending all of this time on court doing loads of repeat sprints or whatever, then it's, it's something completely different. It's not beating them up and they can actually go and focus on the skill development. Um, and I think obviously the skill development at the end of the day is the thing that we're there for. Um, that's the real KPI at the end of the day. Like, can you actually deliver on the court when it matters? So all of the things I do have got to be there to underpin um, 
underpin that on-court performance at the end of the day. Um, and then within that kind of the tempo aerobic session, it's sport-specific tempo as well. So key movement patterns in tennis are kind of shuffling, crossover step, a running step. And I call a running step more of when you're kind of in the alley on the tennis court and you completely rotate the hips and essentially just linear sprint for two steps back into the court. And then you snap the hips back around parallel to the baseline and you're back into position. So based around kind of those three key movements, as well as some kind of linear aspects and then different kind of drop step capabilities when they're looking to hit an overhead. So using maybe five different movements, kind of plugging them all together to an extent and coming up with different movement patterns and incorporating like a tennis tempo. I think that's very important because that's going to train the specific qualities that we need for on-court performance. I think too many times we think that training I don't know, like on, on a bike or something like that is going to have a huge carryover to the court. And it's like, well, I'm not seeing you ride a bike around the tennis court. So unfortunately, the ground reaction forces and everything are going to be completely different. So we've got to be, we can start off in our early kind of GPP phase with general means and um, general physical preparation. But as we kind of move through those phases, if you follow kind of a Bondachuk model, then you've got to get more specific uh, to the demands of the, of the court. And I think the other thing is as well, you've got to realize that obviously, like I said, that repeat sprint bucket is full. They are a very, they've been trained in a very specific way for quite a long time. So that bucket is full for a reason. Um, so we've got to look around that in a way to actually make that book, that bucket itself bigger. Um, and I've tested um, athletes in kind of repeat sprints, um, conditioning and things like that. And they're all, every time they absolutely crush it and they're not fatigued. So the bigger question is, okay, well, what's the thing that we can actually improve? And it's like, well, okay, you can improve your kind of aerobic system and your, your actual outputs. So very much an above the demands and below the demands approach we take to, to the sport. Um, and I think as far as the kind of KPIs go around that, I don't have many or really any, to be honest with you, like strength quality KPIs. I know roughly if we can hit like we talked about earlier with the trap bar, or we can do X amount of pull-ups, then yeah, we're probably going to be strong enough to withstand the demands. And we look at bench pull as well as, as a KPI, but it's a very loose KPI as one of my strength qualities. But my more important KPIs for me are counter movement jump, just for purely kind of low body power output, hands on hips. Uh, I look at RSI, um, and then I look at first serve speed, and then a 10-yard sprint as well. So... I try to make my KPIs as specific as possible, which is obviously very difficult in a very skill oriented sport. So first serve speed is obviously that's a direct kind of correlation of what's happening on the court. The other stuff, not so much RSI. In my opinion, it is typically you see, or I, what I've noticed is my best players have the best RSI. Um, so that's something that I feel is very important. It's a quality we train and we actually monitor that as part of our fatigue monitoring as well. Um, so every time the, the guys and the girls like come into the weight room. I do a, a four jump test on the, on the jump mat, um, hands on hips again. And then we just essentially just track that. They'll do that two to three times of the week, uh, throughout the week. And we'll track that throughout the year and just say, it's essentially a, a constantly like testing, training, training, testing. Um, we're just constantly monitoring that throughout the year. And then as a result of that, if you're depending on how you do on your test that day, then your session will be adjusted on the fly kind of dependent on that. So if you're 95% or above of your best um, like score, then your, your full goal, we can really have a, we can have a great session to, today. If you're 85 to 95%, then we're probably going to have a conversation 
we're going to figure out, okay, well, did you sleep last night? Are you feeling good? You're going to be good for like the full session. Maybe we just pull one set. If it's a three set, three set exercise, maybe we just pull one set and you do two instead of three, but it's, it's a conversation starter importantly. And we can maybe pull back on a little bit of volume. If you're below kind of 85%, then typically we're going to fully like change the session for the most part. Um, again, it's a conversation starter. And then more often than not, it, 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 we find out that, yeah, look, coach, I was up last night till 6, 6 a.m. I've only had two hours sleep. Um, I've got a, like, got an exam at 10. Like, I'm really stressed out about it. It's like, okay, well, why don't you just go and roll out over there, stretch out, make yourself feel good, and then leave a little bit earlier. And if you feel you need to maybe just get a shower, go and do a little bit of last-minute studying, then go and do that. Because to be honest, like, I'm not going to get much out of you in the weight room today. And then maybe if you've got time, we come back and we catch this session this afternoon. And, and things like that. I think being adaptable is very important within tennis um, and trying to have an individualized approach as much as possible because tennis players typically, they, they play for themselves. They, they've, there's only one of them on the court, unless you're playing doubles, then there's obviously two. Um, but typically there's only like yourself on the court playing for yourself, trying to win. Maybe you're trying to win for your coach or whatever, but for the most time it's for you and you're never really playing for another teammate. So tennis players can be quite selfish. And I think they very much appreciate that individualized approach to whether it be programming or just trying to get them, get to know them on that individualized level. And that's one thing they like freshmen, especially really struggle with when they step foot on campus, they, they take, they're all of a sudden being from this kind of individual environment. And now they're thrown into a team environment where there's 10 people on a team. And now they're expected to perform an exercise that they've maybe never done before maybe a front squat, maybe they've never back squatted, whatever, in front of a group of 10 athletes, whereas usually it's just them and their coach in the weight room by themselves. And now it's, it's, very, it's a very stressful environment for them. So it's trying to break down those barriers very slowly and slowly introduce them um, to the barbell and kind of working as a team and things like that and maybe getting some of the, the seniors on the team to help them out and breaking down those barriers. So I think they're, they're definitely some of the things that I've noticed um, working within tennis and it's not necessarily obvious from the outside looking in you've got to be in there to kind of really figure it out and how you approach working with with that style of athlete um, I can't remember where I was going with that but hopefully that, that gives you a bit of an idea <laughs> no that, that, I mean, there's a ton of good things there and one thing I just want to take out that last little bit is you, you, you talked about being adaptable is important for tennis because of the the type of athlete that you have but I honestly like I think that needs to be in every single sport I think in football we're probably way too much on the aspect of push through, do it. Like we're, we're not adaptable. This is our program. This is our team to where if you were able to take just a little bit of what you were talking about and apply that. And I, I try to in with our football team, uh, just take a little bit of that and apply that and just show the kids, Hey, I'm, we're invested in this team and it's not like it's all individual and we're all just going to, but like, we're also invested in you and you're a part of this team. And if this is what we're getting out of you today, like let's adapt and let's, just move it a little bit. And just, I, like you said, I think being adaptable, not just for tennis, but I think for every single sport coach listening there, like it, it needs to be one of the top things that we need to do as a strength coach. Mm -hmm. For sure. And I think that that comes back to, to programming as well. Like I don't make a, a one size fits all program. It's very much, okay, well I need some sort of hip extension exercise or like squatting pattern. And I, I speak to the, I've got an idea of what I'd like to do with the group. But, and I think we've got to be realistic here as well. When we talk about individualization, it's very difficult in a large group scenario. So I've got 18 guys on my team. It's very difficult to create 
individualized programs across the board. So we, we try our best to do that, but it, it is very difficult. So I think as long as you've got a plan and you're willing to adapt to that plan, that's, that's the main thing. And that's when you're going to get a lot of kind of bang for your buck. So a lot of the conversations that I have, it's like, okay, well, look, maybe back squat's your main lift today. Do you like a back squat? No coach. I hate back squat. <laughs> well, how do you feel about trap bar deadlift? It's like, yeah, like, well, what about a leg press? Oh coach, I love the leg press. It's like, okay, well, I don't know people, people knock the leg press all you want, but if, if an athlete is going to be happy coming to the weight room, getting after a leg press compared to a trap bar deadlift or whatever, like give a fuck. Like, I don't care. You know, it's like, well, you can go and do that and we'll hit some of maybe the other qualities that you're not getting on the leg press in a slightly different way elsewhere. Um, and I think letting them make some of the decisions around their own training, empowering them. It's their program at the end of the day. It's their career. You've got to educate them on that pathway. And one of the things I say to our coaches a lot is, well, we're trying to make them like, what's the goal of your program coach? And he'll be like, well, we want to make them into professional tennis players. We want to win championships, improve their skill development, X, Y, whatever. And I'm like, okay, well, if, if our goal is to truly make them perform at the highest level on the ATP tour, the professional tour, or the WTA tour for the women, then it doesn't necessarily matter kind of what we do in the weight room or whatever. It's about empowering them to really understand and educate how they can look after themselves when they're by themselves traveling around the world, going to these various tournaments. So have we given them the skills and abilities they need to prepare themselves properly as part of the warm up to go on court? Have they, do they know how to cool down? If they get knocked out of a tournament early, what's their, what's the rest of their week looking like before they maybe catch a flight? Like, do they know how to, like, when they should get the strength tra training session in the week? Maybe they should need a top-up conditioning session because their, their overall kind of training volume for the week wasn't as high as expected. You're expected to go into the semis in this tournament and you got knocked out in the first round. So there's a clear lack of volume that needs to be potentially made up for there. Um, or alternatively, we just need to freshen you up to maybe get after it in the next tournament because you've got a flight to catch at the end of the week. Things like that. And it's, it's, it's very much an education um, process for me. And yeah, I think, does that answer your question? <laughs> yeah, and I mean, but the, the most important thing that I'm continually taking from this is you constantly keep that 100-yard approach. And I, I think as Nick DeMarco this, emphasized this when he was on the podcast, but like keeping the goal to goal. And that's something that you continually do is like, all right, this is our goal. There are probably 18 different paths that we can take to get to that goal. And we got like that, that big view of the goal and we're far enough away. And I think where we get stuck a lot of times is, we live in the weight room. We're reading weight room books. Like we're stuck and we lose sight of that goal because we are like, all it is like we see this one path to that one goal and there's no other like nuance ability to that. There's no, just that, that Eagle's eye view of looking at things. And I think what you're, you're mentioning is and what you do a really nice job of is keeping that, that, that view of it. And like, like you said, like if that athlete wants to get to their goal this way, maybe it is a leg press, maybe it's doing it this way as long as you're helping guide them to the goal and eventually that, that path is going to where they want to do it and you're giving them ownership and you're giving them variation and you're giving them a way to get there. Does it really matter how we get there? Or do we want them to barbell back squat because we like seeing that number? Like you said, like the reason a lot of coaches I feel like don't like the leg press is because there's like a, there's a, I had the word for it, but like it, it's frowned upon in the strength conditioning circle and other coaches will laugh. It was like, well, if it's getting that athlete to the goal and you're, you're making that athlete succeed, who really cares? 100%. And I think, I think that comes back from as well, 
just understanding, like like you said, and like what Nick referred to as like, what is the actual long-term goal of the athlete and what's kind of some of the, some of the more shorter or intermediate term goals of the athlete. And I can guarantee you 100 times out of 100, it's not for them to have a bigger back squat. They don't care about having a bigger back squat. It really doesn't matter. So it's just about training the, the tissue qualities that they need to be able to perform on the court. And I think within sport and especially strength and conditioning, there's a lot of coaches out there that are very much a PhD in the strength part, but not, they've got kind of a, maybe a high school or first grade understanding of maybe the conditioning and then very little understanding of the actual technical, tactical qualities of the sport. And I think as a profession, we need to do a better job of actually understanding, well, we've got a PhD understanding in the strength. Maybe we need to also get a PhD understanding in the the conditioning and the actual technical, tactical, and even psychological side as well. Um, yeah. And I think we use a very much reductionist approach to strength and conditioning because strength's very easy to measure. It's numbers on a bar. It's how high can you jump? How high can you throw? And it's, well, do these qualities actually transfer to the core or field? Now, that's not an easy answer to come up with. I don't have necessarily an answer for that. I try to run kind of the numbers and see if, we, see if there is correlations and stuff like that to give us a little bit more of an informed approach with our training, but it's, it's definitely not an easy thing to do. So I think too often we're very comfortable with saying, Oh, look, if I get this guy stronger, then he's going to be much better on the field using that reductionist approach. And we break it down to saying like, Oh, look, strength is that quality. And now the more research that comes out and the more experts you kind of hear talking about things in, in other ways, saying that strength isn't the only important it's a barrier for entry and that's that's essentially all it is um i think if you listen to these high level coaches that, that talk about this it's like success leaves clues and if they're having a lot of success maybe using different approaches once they've got to a certain level then i think you've got to start looking under those rocks and saying okay well he's probably strong enough now let's kind of move on and, and chase some of the chase some of the like really important qualities and understand that look their goal as an athlete is not to deadlift trap bar x amount of numbers it's actually how how accurately can we hit this serve? And that's something that I've constantly questioned myself on with one of my KPIs, one of my main KPIs being first serve speed. It's like, well, first serve speed is essentially another reductionist approach for me saying, okay, well, if I can get him to hit this ball as hard as possible over that net, I've done my job. But realistically, if you think about it, it's not about how hard you can hit a serve. It's about how accurately you can hit the serve and execute it with various amounts of top spin, um, like kick and slice and stuff like that. So is there a way for me as a coach to, to measure that? I, I don't know if there is. It's, it's just about accuracy and again, skill development. So can we again develop the physical qualities needed so they can actually do that more often so they don't break down on the practice court? Because at the end of the day, we need them. If they're going to be better tennis players, they've got to hit more tennis balls. They don't need to lift more weights. Yeah. And I just said Zach Elder on the podcast and he mentioned the same thing is like his KPIs are so delayed because, and he works with baseball players. Um, and he talks about the same exact thing. He's like, yes, we, we, we do emphasize some of the throwing speed and some of these, the, the speed off the bat and these type of things, but it, is that applying to the situation? You know, like, is, is that applying to the accuracy of the pitch of where we're actually hitting the ball? And he talked about like his KPIs are after the season, taking a look at, all right, how their batting average do and like, how did these things do? Mm-hmm. And then he's like applying it to his program. And, he, and one of the points that I like that he made is like, it, we just don't like doing that as a strength coach. Cause it's not that instant gratification. It's, it's super delayed gratification 
And then there's so much more thinking that went into it is even if that batting average did increase, was it because of our program or was it because we allowed him to bat more? And there's just, like you said, there's so many things that go into it rather than the A to B correlations that we like in our heads because it's that straight line, pretty picture. And that's not the way the body and especially not the way sports work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And it's, it really is, is it's, it's not an easy thing to do. And if it was easy, then everyone would be doing it. And that's, that's the thing. And it's, we look for these easy reductionist approaches and it's, it's great that we can say that our oh, strength's important. It's like, yeah, look, we know that. It's like, we know strength's important. We don't need to keep banging that drum. And it's the same old thing with the kind of Olympic lift debates that you see on Twitter. Like I'm sick of those debates. Like <laughs> who, who cares? Like who really cares that you Olympic lift for your program and you don't over there, you just do your jumps and throws. Like the big question you should be asking yourself is, did your athlete perform better on the field? And then if they don't, then you need to reevaluate your program. And that's, that's the only thing that matters at the end of the day. Like, did they actually improve? Um, and I think some of the, the way that I approach that is like we sit down as a coaching staff at the start of the year and identify, well, first and foremost, actually, I identify what are the qualities needed, the both physical, psychological, technical, and tactical uh, requirements for each individual playing style. Now, within tennis, there's quite a few different playing styles, um, but I try to break it down to three. So you've got a defensive baseliner, aggressive baseliner, and then I call it a one-two punch guy. So someone that maybe doesn't move quite as well, but has got a big serve, and then tries to finish the rally within kind of one or two shots. Um, so someone like a Del Potro for anyone that knows tennis uh, listening. So by breaking things down to three different categories, then we can say, okay, well, our players fit into these three different categories. Now within those three categories, we've obviously got the technical, tactical, physical, psychological. What are the qualities? What are those qualities of that player? Now they vary considerably, believe it or not, um, from playing style to playing style. If you've got a defensive baseliner, that guy's got to run a hell of a lot more. They're playing deeper behind the, the baseline. Um, they've potentially got to perceive the ball a little bit better and, and things like that. They've got to be aerobically a heck of a lot more conditioned than your one-two punch guy whose rallies are going to be a lot shorter, typically four to seven seconds in duration compared to your defensive baseliner where your rallies are going to be 15 to 20 seconds. Now, if you do 15 to 20 seconds more often, then obviously your contribution, your work to rest ratio is significantly change. Then all of a sudden, if you go over one rally over a one-to-one work to rest ratio is going to put you at a negative uh, work to rest ratio. Then all of a sudden, if you do that too many times, lactate accumulation, byproduct accumulation, should I say, is actually going to increase. And then you get force producing detriments, for lack of a better word. So obviously force producing qualities are going to go down if you've got too much byproduct accumulation. And it's things like that that you've got to look at. So, okay, well, maybe this guy needs a little bit more buffering capacity compared to this guy. And it's being able to actually identify what are the individual qualities needed across the board as tennis, for tennis as a sport, but then also for tennis as the individual. Um, and then within that as well, we, we break it down even further and actually say, and this is something I get the coaches to do at the start of the year um, with each player, we go, okay, so this is our player. We'll call him Barry, okay? So Barry's our player. He's, um, we, we know he's an offensive baseliner. We know his technical, tactical, physical, uh, and psychological qualities are needed for Barry to improve due to his game style. But then as a coach, what do you see are the important qualities that he needs to improve within those technical, tactical, physical, and psychological of game? 
And then what are, his, what are his strengths within those four qualities? What are his weaknesses within those four qualities? And I get the coaches to actually go through this on a, on a chart and they, they plug in all of, the, all of the details for me. And then from that, I can understand, okay, well, maybe he doesn't perceive kind of movement very well. He's physically, when he, from what coach sees on the court, he doesn't move very well or change direction very well. Is that an eccentric strength deficit there? Kind of what, what's going on? And I think taking that approach, that kind of thousand yard view again, gives me more information I can deal with and actually more important information that I'm going to get from any test potentially in the weight room, because this is stuff that coaches are telling me that they see day to day. Now, does that line up with, with what I'm seeing in my testing? Most of the time it, it does, but I think there's definitely a lot of valuable information that you can actually pick up from having those, those conversations and getting coach. Initially it was a bit of a pain for the coaches to do that because they've never done it before, but getting the coaches to, put this information on paper, then I can understand it and really read it and, under, and kind of add it to my program design. So I actually have that sitting on my desk in my office. And if I'm writing the programs out for each individual, I'm looking at those qualities again, saying, okay, well, yeah, this guy needs, like Barry needs this quality. I've got to make sure that's in his program design. Because I think that's very easy to overlook if you don't understand the sport enough. No, and I, I freaking love that because I mean, I did the same exact basically exercise with our football team, uh, football coaches, um, sport coaches out of college. And one of the interesting things for me was at the beginning of the asking them, what, 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 what would you like to see for the team? What would you like to do uh, going forward for this offseason? What are we missing? And it was always like stronger and bigger. Like we want them stronger and bigger, stronger and bigger. And I was like, you can't fault them. Like you're looking at the NFL, you see these huge, massive beings and they're, they're big and strong. And just, I, I kind of know, I'm like, uh, is that really our answer? Like, is that what we really want? So the exercise I had them do is like, all right, can you list the top five players at each position? Uh, what are some of the skill sets that these top five players have? Like what makes them different? What makes them a top five player at that position at that spot? And it was never stronger or bigger, you know, like that was never the answer. So then one of the things, and I was like, what, so what are some of the issues that we have with these positions and that type of thing? And the answers that we got were completely different. And, that's where it was, to me, it was like, and we talked about the relationship with the sport coach and why that's so important. Cause now it just opens up the eyes of, all right, it, it, it's not stronger and bigger. It, it's these things. Maybe it's uh, reacting to a ball. Maybe it's being durable in the sport. Maybe it's um, be, having to do these actions. But like you said, having those talks with the sport coach, one helps you as a, as a strength coach, like, okay, this is what they mean. And that was a big thing for me too, is when they told me things like they fall off tackles or these do things is like, are they falling off tackles because they're weak? Are they falling off tackles because they're not tracking well enough? And the language barrier breakdown that I thought was awesome with the sport coach and having that relationship is now I understand what they're trying to say. Now I understand like when they say they're weak, they mean they're out of position. So now it's not, I don't need to make them stronger. I need to make them track better and get in positions better. And I just thought that was awesome of without that relationship with the sport coach, without having that conversation, when the coach says, I need them stronger for next season because they're falling off tackles, um, then you're just going to throw a barbell on their back again and make them stronger and they're still going to fall off tackles. Uh -huh. Yeah, it's, it's pretty much, and I think stronger, bigger, faster is again, just a barrier to entry. Just a barrier to entry into the sport before we look at more the technical, tactical, and to be honest, like psychological qualities. Um, like psychological qualities are potentially some of the most overlooked um, within sport, especially everyone knows in tennis that psychology is very important, but it's how do we actually like, can we train that? And then it's not necessarily related to, to psychology, but one of the things we do. So throughout the week, we have different themes in our warmups. Um, 
And obviously every S&C coach takes numerous warmups throughout the week. And it's, I think warmups can get a little bit boring. They can like stagnate and stuff like that, especially if you do the, the same one all of the time. So one thing we try and do is have these different themes where it's maybe one day we focus more on a linear speed, like a Monday, for example, a Wednesday would be more of a change direction. And then like a Friday would be reactive agility. So where we play different games and, and, and just have a load of fun. And, um, but in between those days, the Tuesdays and Thursdays, it's maybe some of the things that we started doing were like training the eyes a little bit and things like that. Just some of the things that we don't typically do, like as a strength and conditioning coach. And I know I took the ideas uh, from baseball actually, but just playing around with different, different games where they can get competitive, where they've got to identify like small numbers written on a tennis ball that their opponents kind of rolling towards them. It's like a little game of chess almost that they're just playing. Um, and just, just making everything a little bit more fun. Like the eyes and muscle, let's, let's train it like a muscle. Um, and I think too often we, we essentially, we don't train it at all. Now I think they are training it on the court, but from my experiences, the, the best players, if you look at, especially on the elite level, you're kind of Nadal's Federer's Djokovic, and then some of the best players that I've worked with in college here. And I've been very lucky to, to work with some of the best over the last few years. Um, those best players, they don't always have the necessary like physical qualities that you'd expect, but their perception, action, and reaction skills are second to none. Unbelievable. And they can, they might be in a bad position, but because they can perceive the environment and know what the opponent's going to do, because the way they've kind of shaped up to hit the shot and the kind of position of the wrist and the racket and, and such like, they know where the ball's going to go before the guys even hit it. So they can get themselves, even though they're actually out of position, they've got enough time to get into uh, into position. So that kind of, that got me thinking as well, like, can we actually train the guys who maybe aren't quite as good at this at maybe the bottom end of the lineup? Can we try and improve that quality for them by, by doing these little drills that I kind of stole from baseball and essentially just little games that, that I kind of came up with. And I think that was, that was something that was important. And essentially you could almost look at eyesight as a, another barrier for entry because you wouldn't, if you were kind of blind, you wouldn't be able to drive a car. Or if you don't do well on a, an eye test, when you go to the opticians, you're given, you're given glasses. Now, if, you're, if you've got the wrong prescription, then that's going to be, like, that can severely affect how you play tennis. So a little, like a small question, like, are we actually, like, does this guy actually have the right prescription in his lenses or in his, in his contacts? That's going to be, that could be something that's massively overlooked in sport and from a coaching point of view. Um, that I think we need to potentially look at a little bit more. And that's just could be another little box that we've ticked off as a barrier for entry. Like in something that is where you've got less than a second, typically the ball travels across the, across the court in kind of 0.75 of a second. Like you don't have much time to make a decision and, and move into position. So are we actually got the kind of the right specs on, so to speak? Are our eyes good enough to be able to perceive what's going to happen? Um, number one, so let's get them the right lenses if they don't. Which, which we've had, like we've had issues like that before. It's, it's kind of checking those boxes off. And then once we've got those lenses, can we actually try and train the eyes um, to be able to pick out some of the, like the finite details, maybe even on the ball. So if you're concentrating on the ball, can you actually see the logo on the ball and, and things like that as well? And it's certain things are barriers for entry and then other things aren't. And we've got to try and develop those things that, that maybe aren't around the skills and the, like the technical tactical uh, development. No, I love that. And I actually have kind of a funny story is my, my, my first job out of college, I, wor I was working at a college football team and one of the defensive backs, freshman coming in, he'd been there two or three weeks. One of the fastest on the team moved super, super well. Like this, this, we're like, this guy's going to be a dude. Anytime a ball was in the air, 
looked like, um, <laughs> like a fish out of water, man. Like would jump like three seconds early, just would not see the ball. <laughs> and we were like, what is happening? Like, what is happening? This guy moves so athletically. Like it's just, it's not like he's, he's a missing. It's so weird. Like what is happening? And then we bring him to a meeting and he always sits in the front of the meeting room, like super close to the board. And we go through there's like, what, like we had, like, do you need glasses? Like, is that what is happening? Like, and then like, He's like, no, I don't think so. Like, nobody's ever told me. I just, and it was like, and we sent him back. I'm like, can you read this? And we're like, no, not at all. Like, it's totally blind. And I'm like, oh my goodness. And we brought him to, like, they brought him to the eye doctor. And he had like, you needed like minus three. Like they said, it's like, yeah, you should have got glasses like five or 10 years, like a long time ago. And they get him contacts. And he comes to practice the next day. He's like, oh my gosh, coach. Like, I can see everything. Like, I can see the ball. I was like, oh yeah, like that. Like you said, barrier to entry. Like, my goodness. Yeah, that's, that's a big deal. <laughs> and I think it's, it's overlooked. And especially in like any sport where I, I class tennis as a very obviously skill orientated sport where there's such like fine margins. And I suppose you could, you could put that across most sports, to be honest. But if that's not one of the kind of first boxes checked off and we're trying to throw a barbell on the kid's back instead, <laughs> you can't catch the ball. It doesn't matter how much you can score. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I, I think that's a good spot to transition into a rapid fire round here. And the, the first question to rapid fire round uh, is kind of your favorite books or favorite book that you think listeners can get a lot out of. I think one of the ones that's had a bigger, like one of the biggest impacts on me was actually triphasic training. I know loads of people have read that and it's, it's a go-to for me still. Um, I think the way Cal and, uh, and Ben kind of laid that out was, was phenomenal. Really easy to understand. Like I read that a long time ago now. Um, but I'm always looking for triphasic too. <laughs> so it hasn't, hasn't came out yet. Um, but yeah, that was one that really helped me understand kind of stress adaptation uh, and things like that and how to, I know he, like how uses a block approach, which doesn't necessarily work within tennis. Um, and I, I know, I think people give triphasic, they say it's either brilliant or they say it's, it's not necessarily fantastic just because oh, it's just eccentric, isometric and concentric strength. And it's like, yeah. But it, and they're like, Oh, it's been around for years. It's like it has, but Carl gave us a system to put that into. And that's what a lot of people forget. And I think being able to have that understanding and even use that system to put it into your own, your own system and way. So like microdosing, which is something that, that we do with the tennis guys, microdosing those different um, tissue stresses in terms of eccentric and isometric strength, like everything they do for the most part in the weight room or a lot of coaches focus on the concentric because again, that's our reductionist way of saying, Oh, we got better because our concentric output is higher, but it's, well, what about the eccentric and isometric? They're the things that are really going to make the difference. So you can actually perform the concentric. So that's something though that we look at and that, that book itself had a big impact on kind of the way I think. And that's something that, I mean, that book is beaten up now. Yeah. <laughs> um, I have read it so many times. Um, but yeah, from, so from a training standpoint, that would be my main, main book. I think as a, understanding the, and I think the, one of the big things that I've tried to develop over the last year or so is actually creating a, an optimal training environment. It doesn't matter how good your program is if the kids or the athletes won't do it. So they've got to want to come to, to practice and then really enjoy themselves. So how do we understand them as individuals again and break down those barriers so we can, we can communicate and essentially have fun, like have fun at the end of the day. So they want to come back and, and get after it the next day. So one of the things that, one of the books I've read actually is um, surrounded by idiots. <laughs> so, and I, I can't remember, is it Elliot, someone or other? Brilliant book. It's like 10 books on Amazon or something like that. Um, really good book. And it's essentially a personality kind of profiling book. But 
I've never seen a personality profile kind of book broke down into such simplistic terms. So it's broken down into different colors, red, yellow, blue, and green. And everyone is a part of, or everyone can be potentially one of those colors or a combination of colors. And there's certain colors that don't go well together. So if you're designing a drill and you maybe don't want to put certain, certain colors together. Um, and that just made me think, okay, well, if I'm better reason, maybe this guy doesn't necessarily get on with this guy. So we can kind of think about that and, and adapt our program. If we're grouping the athletes together, let's put personality types together that actually flourish instead of just want to kill each other. Um, so that was a, that, that was another really good book for me. Um, help me to understand how to organize a room and things like that as well. Um, and then the final one would be I'm actually going through it again at the moment is um, checklist manifesto by Atul Gawande. Um, and it's essentially just like it says on the, on the cover um, it's about checklists and how you create an optimal process in, I suppose, high performance environments. It's based around checklists that were put out there for fighter pilots um, doctors and, and, and things like this and how essentially when you're in a high performance environment, such as in the ER, when lives are on the line, like the real high performance environment, forget in sport, when a life is on the line, like what are the actual processes that are put in place to be able to be successful? Because if someone doesn't necessarily put on a face mask during anesthesia, then there could be an infection. And I think a big, a big killer was, um, infections in like tubes um, tube infections for like bacteria and things like that in, in ERs. And that was a big killer. Uh, and then once they started putting in these, these simple checklists, then that actually got rid of uh, death rates um, because of these, um, these checklists that they've put in place. And then people had put a mask on, then there wasn't as much kind of bacteria transfer and stuff like that. And actually putting these checklists in place enabled a successful performance outcome for lack of a better word. And more people were surviving. And I think using that same process, within a strength and conditioning system is very good and how you can actually use that information to put a checklist in place, even if it's just for you being organized for the day in very simple terms. So I'm a big checklist guy. I like, I've got my to-do list actually next to me here and I can just cross off. So I put my everything on a to-do list before I go to bed that night. Then I know what I've got to do the next day and I can go to bed and not have anything on my mind. Uh, and I can hopefully sleep a little bit better. And as soon as I get up in the morning, I can have my breakfast. I can look at my checklist and I'm like, okay, this is what I've got to do today uh, to have a, have a successful day. And then you can start incorporating your checklists into your training as well. So whether that's be like, oh, we're going to hit X, Y, and Z in the warm up, and then we're going to go into whatever in, in the main session um, and things like that. So that's actually been a, a very good book um, and kind of influenced almost program design to an extent as well and the structures and systems that we use uh, to inform programming and, and performance. No, I love that. And this is something that just made me think of this is like, we talked about the repeated sprints um, reserve and talk about ability and talk about how that's that bucket is overfilling um, mm -hmm. because that's what the, the tennis player gets a ton of during their sport. And to me, I feel like that's a little bit of strength coaches with strength knowledge, you know, like the strength stuff is just overfilling. Like that bucket is overfilling and where can we grab from other bits? And this is what I like, I love about is like, how can we grab knowledge from other fields and bring it into our field? Because we already have this like strength knowledge reserve, like overfilling. We get it every single day we work, we get it on these podcasts. We get like everything we consume is one thing. And that knowledge is overfilling and there's so much there. Mm -hmm. How can we grab from other stuff like the surrounded by idiots book and the checklist manifesto and, and, and apply it to our field. So we're not just overfilling the same bucket that every single strength coach already has overfilled. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. And I think that I got that surrounded by idiots uh, off one of my, my friends that runs a, uh, a gym in, in London 
And he kind of stepped into this role of being essentially a manager of this successful gym in London and had, I'm not going to say he had no idea how to manage because that would be massively disrespectful. But he said to me, like, oh, look, you, you really should read this book. Um, it's, it's taught me a lot of how to communicate with different personality types and things like that and how to even organize. And I was like, what is it? How does it work? And he's like, look, just order it. <laughs> and, then read it. and I read it in like a week or something like that. Um, and then got back to him. I was like, dude, that's a, that's a phenomenal book. Like that's a resource that I can constant, constantly go back to now. Yeah, that's awesome. And now to the next question. And this is kind of how we have the podcast continue to grow and kind of how we got you on, but who's a guest that you think we should have on the podcast that our listeners can get a lot, lot out of. I think I would, I'm a big fan of um, what Stefan Jones is, is putting out there at the moment. Um, he works in cricket. I know um, the American audience maybe don't know what cricket is, um, but essentially it's a little bit like baseball, but you just don't run around the bases. You just run back and forward. Um, but he's doing some phenomenal work and really uses, um, like Derek Everly's kind of Bondichuk system as well. Um, I think he's got a, a system called Bondichuk bowling. Um, and it's, it's how he's using almost special, like very special strength training means to actually improve his, his bowlers and things like that. And he's got um, like his skill stability uh, paradigm and, and can break down exactly how bowlers um, like produce force and things like this. Are they um, hip or knee dominant? on back foot contact and things like this. Like, I don't know enough about the system to kind of to talk about it. Um, but he's some, someone that I've actually been reaching out to recently and his, his depth and breadth of knowledge is, is unbelievable when I've been speaking to him and some of this stuff, cause obviously bowling and tennis have got a little bit in common uh, in terms of very technically and, and skill orientated sports and bowling and serving are a little bit uh, similar to a degree. So I've been trying to use some of those ideas. Um, but yeah, his, he's phenomenal. Uh, he's actually contributed to the, um, the Altus, uh, team speed course as well, I think. Um, so yeah, he's a, he's a great resource. Okay. For sure. If I thought tennis was out there, cricket's going to take us to another, <laughs> another hole out there. Bad. That's going to be awesome. For sure. yeah, I'm for sure reaching out, dude. If I can learn anything like that, I, yeah, that, that, that's a sport that I would love to learn more about and just kind of a more out there sport. And next question in the rapid fire round, I think we talked about this a little bit before the podcast, but what's kind of next for you? What's that kind of next big thing that you have on your list to accomplish? Well, currently looking, hopefully releasing a book um, sometime later this year, ideally by Christmas. Like the goal when we set out on this journey was to, to get it under the Christmas tree. Um, that was kind of the, the thing that we said. So yeah, I'm hoping to, to get that out. Um, and I'm, I'm very excited about it. So that's kind of, that's been the labor of love over the last kind of six, six months or so, especially during this lockdown period. Um, so yeah, getting that out, out there for, for everyone. Hopefully it, it makes a, like a difference to the industry. It's, it's a slightly different book. Um, it's more about energy system development for the team court sport athlete and actually working backwards from the game and, and understanding the true demands of your sport. Um, like we talked about quite a lot um, now, it's essentially we, we put too much emphasis on the strength. Like this book doesn't have many, if any, sets and reps. We don't talk about strength once. Um, so it's, it's all about the other stuff that makes up the performance system and creating the optimal training environment and actually realistically understanding, uh, what the sport is that you're working with and what performance needs you actually need to develop in order to do that. So I think it's hopefully more of a, a handbook for coaches. So it's something on the shelf that if you're working with various sports, you can go to and pull up, like pull that book aside and just be like, Oh, okay, that's the, that's what the sport is. So I'm pretty excited about that. Um, and then to just delve into more of that research and how we can actually help 
help tennis as well. And then within that, um, I've actually put out on my social media recently, um, a, a tennis repeat sprint test, um, that I created. Um, essentially I just, I came to the point where I was sick of kind of seeing coaches run mile runs, yo-yo tests. Like I've been guilty for that for sure. Um, mile runs, yo-yo tests, 300 yard shuttles, that type of stuff. And like beep tests for tennis players. And it just doesn't really suit the demands of the sport. So I was like, well, what's the best thing we can do? So I just decided to create my own test. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that's what I did. I've been using it for a year and a half, two years, maybe um, here at Wake. Got some data from it, but wasn't really in the position to say, oh, look, this test is everything and anything. Like it, it's fantastic for tennis players. So I essentially just put a presentation together on my YouTube channel, explaining the reasons behind the test, why we put everything together. Um, and then just, just put it out there. And I posted on my social media the other day and I've had, to be honest, quite a lot of good feedback from it. Um, and a lot of coaches like just reaching out saying, oh, look, we have a lot of questions about it as well, which is fantastic. Some things that I hadn't thought of, um, but that's the reason I put it out there. I put it on my like social media just to say, look guys, like use this test. I don't think it's the be all and end all by any means, but please use it, critique it, pull it apart, share the data you've got and then give it back to me. So we want to try within the community of like tennis strength and conditioning or strength and conditioning as a whole, I'm all about helping each other get better. And that's kind of my way of hopefully helping other tennis strength and conditioning coaches. I feel I'm in a very lucky position to work within um, tennis. And uh, it's kind of allowed me to, to go down a few more rabbit holes than maybe other coaches have the time to do. Um, so by being able to do that, yeah, just putting this, this test together coaches feeding back to me so if anyone anyone listening works in tennis like please go and watch it if you think it's good like fantastic if you hate it same same thing let me know let me know why you hate it you know because at the end of the day we're all here to help each other and if i made a mistake please let me know um but yeah like the feedback we've had so far from the test has been has been very good and then the idea if i actually say at the end of the test look like guys run the test collect the data please feed the data back to me then i can collect it and then if i can I'll run some analyses of the data. And if I find anything, I'm going to share it with everyone that wants, that wants to know. Um, it's not me, like I'm not doing anything for, to be selfish or anything like that. It's just to say, guys, look, this is what I think. Please kind of help me. <laughs> and then the, the long-term goal of it is we talked about the different technical, tactical, physical demands and kind of profiling players into different playing styles. The idea is eventually if I've got enough data to be able to say, okay, well, this game style requires these physical qualities. You need to be able to move at this speed. You need to be able to jump this high, have this level reactive strength um, and, and things like that. And anything and kind of this score on the repeat sprint test. And I, we're not at that stage yet, but hopefully if we can put enough information together, we can profile and give a little bit more quantifiable standards to tennis players. So that's kind of the goal with that. I like that. Those are some pretty big, uh, what's next for you things. I like that. <laughs> a book and a huge new, uh, fitness test for it. So that, that's pretty sweet. Um, next question. Um, and this was when kind of the whole book and everything we just talked about is over. Um, kind of all the coaching career is over, but what do you kind of want your legacy to be when this is all over? What do you want people to say about you that you accomplished that you did who you were? I think I'd just like to, to have from, from personally, I just like to leave the industry in a better place than I found it. Now, whether that's on a, a huge scale or not, I don't really think that matters. I think if you work at a, maybe a smaller school or a bigger school, it's irrelevant. Whether you work in high school or, or professional, it's, it's irrelevant. Did you have a positive impact on the athletes you worked with? 
did you help change their lives like for the better? Um, and things like that. I think that that's the biggest thing for me. Like your, your legacy is, is more like just having an impact on those, on those students that you, that you worked with. Um, and one of the, honestly, one of the biggest things that like the biggest kind of thrills I get, so to speak, is during my time at lecturing, the, the students I worked with there, they still message me on social media, asking me questions or saying whatever. And that's a huge thrill for me because like, it's not about them remembering me. It's about actually having those, I've given them that information for them to be successful and seeing those guys kind of climb the ladder and get into whether it be pro sport or whatever, it may be in the UK or moving overseas. It's given them the opportunities um, to be successful in the future. I was saying, I like that answer a lot. I rambled on about that and I was muted the entire time. So, <laughs> so everybody listening, I'm a technological fool here, but the, the kind of last question of the podcast before we, we finish this up is kind of the billboard message for somebody that's in that Valley and maybe not necessarily Valley, but maybe it's that, that sticking point that you talked about of they, they have two paths to choose. Um, and, and they're at that crossroads and they're kind of looking for that next step, like push themselves over the edge to really, make that next step in their life to, to take that step forward and to keep moving. What's kind of your billboard message for that person? I think, I don't know if it would fit onto a billboard, but it would have to be just, if it wants to go on the, the billboard is like a, almost a quote, it would be just, just make the jump. Okay. Like what's, what's the worst that can happen? You know, like I think you've, if you're not, if you're an ambitious person and you don't feel worried about that next step and making that jump, then I don't think you're, you're thinking big enough. Um, that's, that's the big thing for me. And at at the end of the day, like you can always come back to potentially what you were doing, Like no one died (laughs) at the end of the day, you know, that's the way I think of it. Like you could lose a little bit of money along the way, but like, what is money? It's just another barrier for entry. Uh, At the end of the day, you don't need loads of money to be successful just because you've got loads of money. It doesn't mean you're successful. Um, I think you've just got to, you just got to be ambitious. And if, if there's something that you want to, you want to achieve in the long term ask yourself, is this next step going to allow me to do that? Or if you're really in a rut and you're stuck and you don't know what to do, then you've just, just try something and then you'll figure it out. I know a lot of people say, Oh, like, how do you get to the U S I think I want to go to the U S but I don't want, don't know if I want to go to the U S and, and things like this. And a lot of people in, in, in doing a university degree don't know what they want to do when they leave. And it's like, well, do something if you do something, then you'll know if it's a right or wrong thing. It's only like, and that's another big thing is for me, it's, you know, there's no such thing as a mistake, really. It's just a choice and another experience. And then from that experience, you learn and grow. As long as you don't make those kind of mistakes twice, then it's not really a mistake. So yeah, do something is better than nothing. That's going to allow you to make another decision based on the informed information you've made on your last decision. And then you can, you can go again and hopefully you'll get a little bit. It's never in a straight line. It's always kind of, as the diagram that you see on social media says, it's always kind of all over the place. Um, but yeah, it's, it's never straightforward and easy. You've just got to jump and make the best decision possible and, and do something at the end of the day. Yeah. I love that. And then and the more jumps you make, the more experience points that you have, the more you're able to draw upon, even if that experience is a failure, like you mentioned, like the next job, that next spot that you get, the next jump that you make, like you're going to be able to draw from that failure point. And that's why I feel like the, the fear of failure, I understand and I understand why people are just like, at the end of the day, like, Failure is one of the best things because it just gives you another experience point to drop on and to move forward in that next step for you. Yeah. And I, I think I actually don't mind failing, which maybe sounds, maybe sounds stupid. I don't know. But I think, like you said, that's, that's what you learn. If everything was really like sweet and yeah, like 
everything was fantastic, like sunshine and rainbows every day, then that, it's just not realistic. It's not realistic for a start. And to be honest, if it was, if everything was sunshine and rainbows every day, you probably wouldn't be happy because you wouldn't feel like you've actually achieved anything. So it's when you go to those, not necessarily darker places, but harder places and you, and you come through the other side, you're like, Oh shit. Yeah. I achieved something. And that's when you feel good. That's when you get the endorphin release. Yeah. Coach, we did it. We finished up the podcast. This is awesome. Thank you for being on. No worries. Thank you so much for having me. It's been, uh, been great fun and I really appreciate it. Thank you guys for listening. Keep chopping wood.